Let's just pray before we begin. Father, <coughs> send your Holy Spirit among us now as our teacher. Lord, that we might understand what your word says to us. Lord, we pray that we'll be excited about what you've done for us when Jesus died on the cross. Oh Lord, just bless us now and anoint your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Right, okay, we're I think on number six in our salvation series, and just a very, very quick recap, we're looking at the four barriers, or I said the four electric fences which were put up between man and God as a result of Adam and Eve falling into sin. And what we're doing is that we are looking at how, when Jesus died, each of those fences was knocked down, leaving a clear run for anyone who wants to, through believing on Jesus, to be saved. Now, we come to the third electric fence tonight. And what we're going to do, we saw that one of the fences, one of the problems, was the fact that we needed an answer to the penalty of sin. So tonight, fence number three. And you'll remember that we were saying that because of God's nature, because of God's holiness, and remember that God's holiness comprises of his absolute righteousness and his absolute justice. Now last time we were looking at how the barrier of God's absolute righteousness was overcome and we looked at atonement and imputa imputation. But tonight we're moving on to the next one which is God's absolute justice. And therefore we need to see how on the cross Jesus answered the problem of the penalty of sin. Now, what we're going to look at tonight, in fact, is expiation and propitiation. Now, let me immediately say something, all right? You cannot finally avoid technical words. Don't be frightened by them. Don't let them daunt you, all right? If you want to learn about cars, you are eventually going to come up with terms like carburation, all right? And you've got to handle them. I mean, you know, they're frightening at first, but you soon get to know. If you want to join the St. John's Ambulance uh, Service and, and learn first stage, you're going to have to find out what cardiovascular means, okay? And say you get, for instance, uh, another example. Say you get interested in the history of Great Britain from the point of view of the relationship between church and state. Now, if you got interested in that as a subject, you would soon come up against a certain word anti-disestablishmentarianism but don't worry about that one all I'm saying is don't don't be frightened by technical words because we're going to find out exactly what they mean now then what we're going to be looking at tonight is this it's the fact because man has sinned because everyone has sinned we have this the sentence has been carried out by God it's as simple as that we're guilty the whole of mankind is now there are two things Firstly, the penalty for sin must be paid. That cannot be dodged. And secondly, God's righteous demands must be satisfied. Now, this is the third fence, and this is what we're looking at tonight. Now, before we go into this, I've got to sort out a little bit of potential confusion, all right, that is going to appear in the various translations in the Bible. Because when we look at expiation, and propitiation, we're going to see that they are two different Greek words. 
but also that they're two different words, but they're related in meaning, and therefore they are similar. Now, what that means is this, regrettably, the RSV, which is the Bible I'm using, translates both of them as expiation, alright? The King James Version, equally unhelpfully, translates both words as propitiation. <laughs> and the NIV, the New International Version, translates both words as atoning sacrifice. Now, we've also got to sort this out. However, it's not invalid, particularly, that the Bibles do that, because the meaning, as I'm going to show you, is intertwined here. That expiation and propitiation, as we're going to see, are two sides of the same coin. You can't have one without the other anyway. And also, the NIV translates atoning sacrifice. You see, atonement means to cover. We saw that last time, the covering and removal of sin. But atonement includes expiation and propitiation as well. So, therefore, all these things are wrapped up. The same with redemption. We looked at that. They're all wrapped up together. Now, I don't want you to think that as Jesus was dying on the cross, you could have stood there with a stopwatch and said, ah, oh, that bit was redemption. Uh, that bit was propitiation, or that bit was atonement. These are all wrapped up in one thing. Now, obviously, in order to understand it, I'm having to take it to bits for you, obviously. But go back to a carburetor. To study a carburetor, you take it down into its bits. But it's only when they're all together you've got a carburetor. Can you see that? So we've got to kind of, you know, see the individual parts. And when they're all put together, they equal justification by faith. And we will get to that in a study in a few weeks' time, and you'll see how they all fit together as one. But, so let's begin with expiation, alright? Now then, what we've got here is this, that sin has happened. Sin has undeniably happened. And God's justice, his absolute justice, demands that the penalty for sin be paid. There's no getting round at that. As the old um, kind of cliche is, God doesn't wink at sin. No matter how much God loves somebody, because he's absolute justice, he can't just pretend they haven't sinned. It's got to be dealt with. So what we have is this. The verdict has been passed guilty. All have fallen short of the glory of God. Therefore, sentence must be carried out. Now, before we proceed on that, let's find out what exactly, then, is the sentence. What is the sentence that was passed on humanity? We'll start with me in Genesis 2, verse 17. And tonight, as always, I guarantee we will be from Genesis to Revelation all over the place. And first of all, <clears throat> Genesis chapter 2, verse 17. And this is when God is speaking to Adam. And he says, but of the tree... I mean, Adam can do what he likes except uh, I've lost ah yes verse 17 but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat for in the day that you eat of it you shall die alright now in actual fact you remember that when we did our earlier study in the series I showed you that this is a mistranslation and that in the Hebrew what God said to Adam is that in the day you eat of it dying you shall die. And we saw that what happened is that because Adam and Eve sinned, their spirits within them died, 
Now, the Spirit is the only way we can have fellowship with God, because God is Spirit. So, because their Spirit inside of them died, they were cut off from God, out of fellowship with God, and as a result of that, physical death happened later. Alright? So, you can see it there, dying, you shall surely die. Alright? Now then, uh, move on with me into um, Ezekiel 18, and verse 4. Throughout this course, I don't want to take anything for granted at all. It's zero option, as the Americans say. Totally back to basics. Everything coming from the scripture. And Ezekiel 18, verse 4, we read this. Behold, all souls are mine. This is the word of the Lord. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father, as well as the soul of the Son, is mine. The soul that sins shall die. Alright? Now then, go over to Romans chapter 6. Remembering the whole time that the Old Testament and the New Testament make up one book. And in Romans chapter 6 and verse 23, we read this. For the wages of sin is death. Alright? So here we have the sentence that has been passed on mankind. And it's this, it's death. But remember, it's more than just physical death. What we're talking about here is spiritual death. Our spirits are dead, all right? Now, because of that, you get physical death and then eternal separation from God. So remember, when a, if a man is in sin, his spirit is dead within him, he cannot have fellowship with God, and as a result of that, physical death will follow, and then eternal separation from God. That is the sentence which has been passed on mankind by God. Now remember, in regards to this, this may surprise you, if I said, how often did Jesus die for our sins? You'd say, oh, once, it says that, he died once and for all, alright? No, he didn't. Jesus died twice for our sins. Now, what do I mean by that? Quite simply this, Jesus died twice on the cross. He died spiritually because sin, the judgment of sin came on him. His human spirit died inside of him. He was cut off from God. For that reason, he cried out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Now then, my God, the Father, my God, the Holy Spirit. Jesus, firstly, his human spirit died within him, so he was cut off from the Godhead, and then, as a result of that, he died physically. Alright? So there we have it. The sentence that has been passed on mankind is death. Now then, what I'm going to show you now is that when Jesus died, he died as an expiation. Alright, now then. The Oxford Dictionary defines expiation thus. To pay the penalty of, or to amend. Alright, to make amends. That's what the word means. Now the Greek word is hilasmos. This is the one of the words we're going to be looking at tonight. Hilasmos, okay. And what it means is this. A means whereby sin is covered and remember covering atonement, we did that last time, a means whereby sin is covered or atoned and remitted. 
or pardoned, if you want another legal term there. Now, bearing that in mind, that this is what we're going to see. Jesus died on the cross as an expiation, and an expiation is a means whereby sin is covered and remitted, i.e. it becomes not a problem anymore. Now, turn with me to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. And if you find verse 13, now then, this is what Paul says. He said, And you who were dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, having cancelled the bond which stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Now, what I want you to understand at this precise moment about that, so we're going to be coming back to it in a few minutes, is simply this. Under Roman law, if a man was tried and found guilty of an offence which was crucifiable, all right, what happened was that as the man was crucified, they nailed above his head on the cross, they nailed up um, a bit of wood with the crime that he was dying for written on the bit of wood, okay? So that a bloke was being crucified and nailed to the cross was a bit of wood with the crime written on that he was dying for. Can you see that? So what he, the crime he committed was nailed up on the cross with him to show that he was dying to pay for that crime that he had committed, all right? Now then, Keep your fingers in Colossians chapter 2 and go to John 19. And I'm going to read from verse 17. You might be able to guess what I'm going to say. Remember, we're saying that when a man under Roman law was crucified, the crime he had committed was nailed to the cross with him to show that that was the crime he was being punished for. Now then, in John 19, and we're going to read from verse 17. So they took Jesus, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on the either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote a title and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Now again, let me make a correction from the Greek. The sign did not read Jesus of Nazareth. It read Jesus the Nazarene. That is the literal translation of the Greek in that verse. So therefore, Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross and it read Jesus the Nazarene, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this title for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and it was written in Hebrew, in Latin and in the Greek. The chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered him, What I have written, I have written. Now the point being this, that when Jesus was crucified, Pilate could find no crime whatsoever that Jesus had ever committed that he deserved to die for. Therefore, because of that, there was no crime nailed up on the cross with Jesus because no one could find anything he'd ever done wrong. So therefore, on the cross instead, Pilate put Jesus, the Nazarene, King of the Jews. 
Now, interesting, because Jesus, remember, what we're establishing is, is Jesus, there was no sin in his life for him to pay for. Therefore, it wasn't nailed on the cross with him. And Jesus is the Greek form of the Hebrew name Joshua. And Joshua means Jehovah is salvation. And that here we have the picture that Jesus is dying on the cross, not for his own sin, because he hadn't committed any, but he was dying on the cross for the sins of everyone else, our sins, everyone else's sins in the whole world. Now, I want to come back to why I gave you the literal translation and corrected that it wasn't Jesus of Nazareth, but it was Jesus the Nazarene. Now, in the Greek, all right, they do not have a number system. Uh, in our language, we've got ABCs, we've got letters, we've got one, two, threes, we've got numbers. Now, in the Greek, they didn't have that. So, therefore, in the Greek, for counting purposes, all right, every Greek letter had a numerical value attached to it. Now, that means that with any Greek word or phrase, you can tot up the numerical value. Now, of course, because everything in the Bible has been written by God, everything is of significance, including the numbering system in the Bible. Now then, if you take this phrase, Jesus the Nazarene, and if you tot it up numerically, according to the Greek system, you get this. The name Jesus in Greek totals 888, 888. Now, interestingly enough, 8 in the Bible is the number of resurrection, all right? That is what the number 8 in the scripture stands for. And here we see Jesus, 888, resurrection, resurrection, <coughs> resurrection. Can you see that fits? So we've got Jesus, numerical value 888. Then you get the, and in the Greek, that adds up to 70. Then you get Nazarene, and in the Greek, that adds up to 1,239. Now, if you tot up the numerical value of the title, this part of the title that was hanging with Jesus on the cross, Jesus, the Nazarene, the number you get when you add it up is 2,197. Now, 2,197 <coughs> is the cube of 13. And 13 in the Bible is the number of evil. You get 13, 13, 13. Now then, bear that in mind, we've read in this series before, 2 Corinthians 5.21, when it says this, God made him, that is Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, keeping your finger in Colossians, turn with me to Revelation 12 and verse 9. And I'm going to show you the only other place in the Bible where this numerical <coughs> incidence happens. Revelation 12, verse 9. And I just want to read a bit of it. Well, now I'll read all of it. The great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan. Now then, if you take the phrase, called the devil and Satan and add the numerical value up in the Greek, you get exactly the same number, 2,197, which is 13 cubed. 13, 13, 13. Now, bear that in mind, all right, and turn to Numbers, chapter 21. 
and we're going to read a little story here she'll probably know about the serpent in the wilderness numbers 21 and we'll read from verse 9 basically what we've got well okay we'll take it um from verse 7 what you've got here is that God's people in the wilderness are moaning and groaning and they're sinning against God and God sends judgment amongst them and the judgment is that he sends fiery serpents which start biting them and killing them all right let's start from verse 6 then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people so that many of the people of Israel died and the people came to Moses and said we've sinned for we have spoken against the Lord and against you pray to the Lord that he take the serpents from us so Moses prayed for the people and the Lord said to Moses make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole so that everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live so Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole and if a serpent bit any man he would look at the bronze serpent and live so what happens is the judgment of God comes amongst them because of their sin the judgment is in the form of fiery serpents now in the Hebrew fiery serpents that word is nakash and it is the same word used in Genesis 3 of the serpent that tempted Eve, Nakash, alright? Now, the way that God brings our salvation from this particular judgment is that Moses makes this, this sort of graven image of a serpent, lifts it up on a pole, and that anyone who looked up at that serpent on the pole was immediately healed by God. Their looking up to the serpent was an act of faith, in God's mercy and therefore they were uh, set free from that judgment now then go with me to John and chapter 3 and some very well known words from Jesus John chapter 3 and we'll start reading at verse 14 Jesus says this and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness so must the son of man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now can you see that Jesus is using that story in the Old Testament to illustrate what is going to happen when he dies? Because salvation was when they looked at the serpent on the pole. Now Jesus said, I am going to be lifted up on the cross, and if anyone looks to me, they will be saved. And in Hebrews it says, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. But can you see, in so doing, Jesus, as it were, is becoming the serpent or the evilness that has infected mankind. Can you see that? And the principle that we've underlined throughout this course is this, that Jesus beats the problem by becoming the problem. We've seen that the problem was man, so the second person of the Trinity becomes a human being. We've seen that the problem with man then was sin. And we've seen that on the cross, Jesus became sin for us. And now we go one step further and see almost that the instigator of sin in the universe was Satan, the serpent. And here Jesus becomes almost, as it were, the devil himself. Now, I haven't said literally the devil himself. I'm not starting any new heretical doctrines here. But can you see the point? Alright, the coincidence of the, the numerical value of Jesus the Nazarene and called the devil and Satan and Jesus becoming the physical, personal embodiment of all evil when he died on the cross. Now, bearing all that in mind, you should still have your finger in Colossians 3, which I haven't. So while I'm looking for Colossians 3 again, 
and doubt this while you're looking for Colossians 3 again, we'll read it through once more. And you who were dead in trespasses, etc., etc., go down to verse 14, having cancelled the bond which stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Now, here's the point. When Jesus died, there was no sin that he was dying for that was his own. There was nothing for anyone to nail up on the cross. So they put Jesus, the Nazarene King of the Jews. And I've shown you the, uh, you know, the numerical importance of that. But what we are seeing here is that your sin and my sin, indeed the whole sin of the whole world, was nailed up there with Jesus. You know, what we've got here is an IOU, all right? saying the bond which stood against us with its legal demands this is an IOU it's a legal one and what it means is quite simply this because we were sinners we owed God death as the penalty for our sin alright now what Jesus is doing here is that he is cancelling a debt now in the John passage that we read if you go on a bit for when Jesus died on the cross he said it is finished alright now that word, one word in the Greek, although three in the English, it is finished, is teleo. Now teleo has various different meanings, and one of them indeed is simply it is finished, it is at an end, it is completed. But one of the other meanings it has is that it can be legitimately used as an accountancy term, and it can mean paid in full. And that when Jesus died on the cross, he yelled out, paid in full, alright? Because he had paid, by becoming sin, Jesus had paid the penalty for you and for I and for everyone when he died on the cross. So that the judgment for sin came down on Jesus and Jesus paid the price. And it's like you know, if you've got an ex-con, okay, maybe he's nicked something or robbed the bank and he's in the slammer, say, for seven years and he comes out. Now, if someone starts to lay that on him, saying you're an ex-con, he says, now hold it, I've paid my debt to society. Can you see the idea of a debt? Now, Jesus paid our debt to God when he died on the cross. And of course the point is this, that even under our law today, when someone has been punished for a crime that he's been found guilty of, whether it's a jail sentence, a fine or death, once that sentence has been carried out, no one can ever be tried again for that crime. It is once and for all. That crime can never be brought up again in law. Alright, so then Jesus was punished for the crime of our sin. Now having said that, let's actually see, remember I was talking about Greek word hilasmos, expiation, let's have a look at this word in one or two places. Go to 1 John, the first epistle of John, and we're going to see it in chapter 2 and chapter 4. Now first of all, 1 John chapter 2 and verse 2. Now remember, alright, that those of you who have got the King James Version, you've got a naughty, naughty, naughty mistranslation, because yours says the wrong word. It should say expiation, all right? And some of you with the NIV have got atoning sacrifice. But anyway, let's have a look. And he, this is Jesus, he is the expiation for our sins, all right? But listen to this. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, can you see the point? I'm emphasizing all the way through this course that the death of Jesus was as 
valid for unbelievers as for believers. It was for everyone. Alright, so here we have Jesus as an expiation paying the penalty for our sins as believers, but not ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. There's that word elasmos. Go to chapter 4 and verse 9. And it says, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world, that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the expiation for our sins, or sent his son to be the means whereby sin could be paid for in full. But in this language in John, all right, talking about the love of God that was made manifest, we're of course reminded of John 3.16, that God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten Son. The whole world was included on this, not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. Now then, seeing as we've got this far, we hit a problem. Or I've hit a problem, you might not recognise the problem until I explain it to you. But I was in a position for years as a Christian, all right, I got converted, I started to study the Bible and things like that, I heard Bible teachers, I heard what we're all supposed to believe. And if there was one doctrine that I could not come to terms with, it was the doctrine of the atonement. I believed it because the Bible said it. But this is what I could never come to terms with. I could not see how the death of an innocent man could in any way affect the destiny of a guilty man. I could never see any justice in that whatsoever. How could God, simply through the death of an innocent man, take care of the sins of guilty men? And this never... Now, this is what everyone preaches. This, this is what we're all supposed to believe. Now, as I will demonstrate to you, I do believe that the innocent died for the guilty. But what I'm going to show you is that it's far more than just substitution here. Jesus did die in our place, absolutely 100%, but there's more to it than that, and it's that more to it I want to bring out. I've never heard anyone else bring this out. If it's heresy, I apologise, although I know it's not, but I've just never heard anyone bring this out. I think it will make more sense. Now, in order to do that, turn with me to Romans 5, and I want to show you some verses, okay? A whole list of verses to introduce a principle as something that has happened. First of all, Romans chapter 5 and 5 verse 12. I just want to read the first bit. Therefore, as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all, to all men because all men sin. But the point is, as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. All right? Now then go down into verse 15 and the second part. For if many died through the one man's trespass, for if many died through the one man's trespass, alright, go to 17, for if because of one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, alright, Go down to the next verse, 18. Then, as one man's trespass led to condemnation for all men... Alright? You with me on this? Now go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. <laughs> Keep your hands... Well, 1 Corinthians 15. And verse 22. For as in Adam all die... 
Right? Now that's all I want. As in Adam, all die. Now then, what I have established in reading those verses, and I think you will have seen it, is quite simply this, and any, any evangelical will tell you this, they'll agree with me on this, is that we've seen that the whole of humanity was incorporated into Adam. That Adam, if you like, was the representative head of the whole human race. Alright? So in Adam all die. Because Adam sinned and died, that is the same for all of us, that all of us are in Adam. Are you happy with that, all right? In regards to death, death came through one man. So we have Adam as the representative head, if you like, of the whole of humanity. And everyone who was ever to be born was in Adam. Now, in actual fact, that was quite literal, in fact, because all of us have come from the loins of Adam. Genetically, that is absolutely and literally true. But can you see, the whole human race, everyone, throughout history, was in Adam. Okay. Now, bearing that in mind, go back to Romans, chapter 5. <laughs> The pièce de résistance coming up. Romans chapter 5 and verse 14. Now listen to this. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sins were not like the transgression of Adam, but here's the point, who was a type of the one who was to come. Alright, are you with me so far? So we've established that Adam was a representative head of the whole human race. We were all in Adam and we all died in Adam. Alright? Now then, we are in him and yet here the Bible says that he was a type of the one who was to come. Now then, what I'm going to show you now is this. That likewise, the whole human race past, present and future was incorporated into Jesus when he died. In exactly the same way that we are, that I died in Adam, in exactly the same way that we were all in Adam and therefore all died in Adam, in exactly the same way everyone, every man, woman and child who has ever lived or whoever will live was incorporated literally, this is a mystery, it's beyond us, but was literally incorporated into Jesus when he died on the cross. Now then remember, I'm answering the problem, how can the death of the innocent pay for the sins of the guilty? Now then, what it means is this, that when Jesus died on the cross as the penalty, for sin, as a sacrifice for sin, when God's judgment came down on Jesus, it means that every man, woman and child throughout history was in Jesus receiving the judgment on themselves in him. Can you see that? So therefore, when Jesus died on the cross, I received the judgment that was due on me, the wages of sin is death, the soul that sins it shall die, and the day you eat of it dying you shall die, that just punishment for my sin, I received that in Jesus. God's judged me in Jesus, alright, 2,000 years ago on the cross. Now then, go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Because I've either got to be able to show you this very clearly, or I can't. Fortunately, I can, or of course, I wouldn't be saying it, would I? So, 2 Corinthians, chapter 5 and verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us, because we are convinced that one has died for all, i.e. Jesus, 
I'll read this again. For we are convinced that one has died for all, that is Jesus, mm -hmm. all right? Therefore, all have died. Now, can you see that? Therefore, all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might live no longer for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Now then, what that means is simply this, that everyone, all, totally comprehensive, the whole of humanity, past, present and future, were put in Christ in his death to sin. So God judged you when Jesus died. You were in, 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 in Jesus. The you have been judged for sin, all right, in Jesus. So all are put in Christ in his death to sin. But, now get this, because this is vitally important, but only believers, only believers are put in Christ in regards to his resurrection. All right? Now I'm going to say that again. Everyone, including unbelievers, were put into Jesus in his death to sin, but only, and I repeat, only believers are then, when they believe, put in Christ in regards to his resurrection and therefore saved. Now, throughout this, what have we been seeing this whole course? We've seen that everyone is saved potentially. But it's only by believing on Jesus that you make that potential actual. Now, bearing that in mind, 1 Timothy chapter 4. Chapter 4. And I'm going to show you one of these... It's one of what I call the Bible's little verses. All right? Now, any of you who have done insurance or any legal agreements, all right, you are as where as aware as I am that the real meat is in the small print isn't it yeah. the bits that really matter are in the small print it's in the little verses alright now then this verse here 1 Timothy 4 verse 10 is what I call one of the little verses it's, it contains the small print and it's the small print that contains the most fundamental truth just listen to it for to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the saviour of all men, especially of those who believe. Now, shall we read that again and make sure we get this? <laughs> we have our hope set on the living God, who is the saviour of all men. Not of some men, not of believers. He is the saviour of all men. But then it goes on to say, but especially of those who believe. Because what we've seen is that everyone can be saved. No one is separated from God because of their sin. They're separated from God because they don't believe in Jesus. So therefore, all men are saved, but it says especially, alright, because it's only when you believe that you are actually saved. So there, that's a vitally important verse, God the Saviour of all men, but especially of them that believe. So then, what we have is this, that when Jesus died on the cross, sin was expiated. The penalty demanded by God's righteousness for sin was paid 100% by Jesus. 
He died in your place and everyone's place, but on the other hand, it wasn't just the innocent dying for the guilty, because you died in him. God's judgment actually, personally, came on you in Jesus. Now that is the full truth of substitution. All right. Therefore, as a result of expiation, because the penalty of sin has been paid, uh, because God's justice is, you know, has been taken care of in that sense, the logical result of that is propitiation, and that is what we now move on to. All right. So what I'm saying is that because expiation, as just explained, has happened, propitiation automatically follows on. Now then, propitiation. You remember at the start I said that there were two aspects to this. The penalty of sin must be paid. We've seen that expiation. But the secondly, God's righteous demands must be satisfied. All right. The demands of the law must be satisfied. God can't just turn his back on all this. His justice means he's totally committed to it. So therefore, the righteous demands of God must be satisfied. Now then, propitiation in the Oxford Dictionary, thus, to appease or to satisfy. Now the Greek word we're going to look at now, propitiation, is hilasterion. Hilasterion. Now notice the similarity to hilasmos. That's why the Bible translators got confused, all right? We're looking now, not a hilasmos, expiation, but hilasterian, propitiation, but they are very kind of um, similar. Now then, so we're talking about to appease or to satisfy. Now then, all of you who have sort of, you know, done geography and history of religion at schools and that, you, you've all read about the pagan gods that need to be appeased. All right, the sacrifices, we're appeasing our God. All right, and of course, the idea being that if you had some people, say natives or, or sort of backward sort of people, as it were, that if, if a volcano went off, they thought their God was being angry with them. And if they made lots of sacrifices, and if they worked very hard and did great feats of great courage, that that would appease their God and that the volcano would stop. Or if a hurricane came, or a whirlwind, or something like that. The idea that through sacrifice they could appease the anger of their God. All right. Now sometimes Christianity is criticised on the basis that it's like the pagan religions, you know, this appeasing an angry God. Now what I want to show you now is that it is totally different in the Bible to that kind of appeasing an angry God. All right. And the reason is simply this. If you've got your angry God and you're sort of like, you know, going around your totem pole and the volcanoes erupting or the earthquakes happening, you're appeasing your God. You're trying to stop him being angry by doing something for him, all right? That is appeasing the angry gods in the pagan sense. But here in the Bible, God is not and can never... What we see here is that God can never be appeased by anything we do or give him. That is the difference between Christianity and all the other faiths. And that what we have is this. God was appeased only by the death of Jesus. Now Jesus was the second person of the Trinity. Jesus was God himself. So what we see is that divinity is only appeased by divinity. Not by anything you or I ever do. God is only appeased by what he himself does. And in the death of Jesus, God died, literally. Now let's actually see this word, hilasterion. 
our propitiation. Go first to Hebrews chapter 9. <coughs> and we'll read this verse, and if I was to ask you which word is uh, hilasterian, you probably won't be able to guess, which will be quite understandable, and you'll see why in a moment. Hebrews chapter 9, and I'm going to start reading from verse 3. It says this, Behind the second curtain stood a tent called the Holy of Holies, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, I shall explain this in a minute, which contained a golden urn holding the manna, an Aaron's rod that budded, and the tables of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Now then, we're looking for the word hilasterian or propitiation. Anyone know where it is? The mercy seat. Ah, oh, Blinda's been right cheesy. No, I haven't. You've written it down. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> it's the mercy seat. Here, the word hilasterian is the mercy seat or the propitiation. And in order to understand what this is all about, we need to understand that this mercy seat in the temple was on top of the Ark of the Covenant. So in order to understand what's going on here, we need firstly to have a look at the Ark of the Covenant and then the actual mercy seat. Now if you turn to Exodus 25, because this will tell us all we need to know at this particular juncture. Exodus 25. And we'll start reading from verse 10. Exodus 25, verse 10. Now first of all we're looking at the Ark of the Covenant, alright? They shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. And you shall overlay it with pure gold, within and without shall you overlay it. And you shall make upon it a moulding of gold round about. Alright? Now then, put that together with what we've read from Hebrews, and I'll put the whole thing together. Remember, last time we looked at Noah's ark. And we saw that the ark is a picture of salvation. An ark is simply a, a, a chest for putting your valuables in. And in the time of Noah, God's valuables were Noah and his family because they were believers, so God put them in the ark. All right? But we saw that the ark is a picture of Jesus and salvation. That Jesus is the ark, where in him, therefore, the waters of judgment cannot touch us. All right? Now, quite equally, the ark of the covenant is also a picture of Jesus. Now, then, notice... It was made from wood, alright? And it was overlaid with gold. Now why is that? Well, made from wood. Now we're going to, later on in the course, be seeing things like wood, hay and stubble. And we're going to discover that wood and hay and stubble and all that sort of thing always stands for mankind, alright? And we're going to see that uh, gold, and this was overlaid with gold, always represents God. So here the art is made from wood and there you have the humanity of Jesus and it was overlaid with gold and there you have the divinity of Jesus so the ark is a picture of Jesus, the God-man the only one who could be the rescuer as we saw in an earlier study now then what was in the ark of the covenant? there were three things first of all there were the broken tablets of the Ten Commandments which God gave and they were broken All right. remember there were two sets, God's set and man's set all right, and Moses eventually broke them, and therefore they were put in the um, in the ark. All right, and it's a picture of man's sin. 
The fact that God's commandments were immediately broken by man, he couldn't keep them, there you have a picture of man's sin. If you want to take verses for that, Exodus 32 verse 15 and Deuteronomy 10 verse 5. Now the second thing that was in there was Aaron's rod, which budded. Now what's this all about? Well, remember when God chose Aaron to take a particular leadership amongst his people? But there were some people who thought, why should Aaron be? You know, we want to be, you see. And so what happened was to prove to the people which one was his true leader, you know, the contestants had a rod, an armour rod, and they put it overnight, and Aaron's budded to show that he was God's choice, that he was God's authority, and not the others, all right? So therefore, Aaron's rod, which budded, stands for the rebellion of man against God's authority, all right? Reference number 17, verse 1. And the third thing that was in the Ark of the Covenant was the golden urn of manna. Now where did that come from? You'll remember through the wilderness they didn't have any food. And every morning God sent them manna as all they had to live on. And he said, look, just gather a certain amount every morning and twice as much on a Friday because you can't go out on the Sabbath. All right? So God gave them very specific instructions as to how to receive his provision through the wilderness. What happened? Well, they didn't take the blindest bit of notice of God's instructions for getting the manna. They went out on the Sabbath and they didn't find any. They started storing it up and it would go mouldy and stuff like this. So the point is that the golden urn of manna, which was a, a little bit of manna, was kept, put in the urn and put in, in the ark. It was kept. It was showing man's refusal to accept God's provisions on God's terms. Because when God provides, it's on his terms. And here we have the failure of man. So what have we got in the ark? We've got sin. We've got rebellion against God's authority. We've got the refusal to accept God's terms in God's ways or God providing for us in his way. Exodus 16.33, that last one, by the way. So then, all these are in the ark. Now, what does it mean? Well, isn't it incredible? Where is your sin? It's inside the ark. It's inside Jesus. And it's hidden. It's covered. It's atoned for. It's gone. Removed completely. All our rebellion against God. Where is it? It's in the ark. It's covered. It's completely gone. Our refusal to let God provide on his terms. Where is it all? In the ark. So can you see the whole point is that the sin of the whole world is covered by Jesus. It's removed. It's inside the ark. It cannot be seen. Now then, because sin is in the ark, because it's hidden, covered in Jesus, therefore we come on to the mercy seat. Go down. We're still in Exodus 25. Go down to verse 17. And we read this. Then you shall make a mercy seat. Now there you have a propitiation. Then you shall make a mercy seat of pure gold, two cubits and a half, etc., etc. You shall make two cherubim of gold, etc. Make one cherub on one end, one cherub on the other. All right, go down to verse 20. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, their faces one to another. Go down to verse 21. You shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark. Okay, verse 22. There I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are upon the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you of all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. Now, what we've got is this. That on top of this ark, the ark of the covenant, where all the sin was, inside, sort of gone and covered, we had the ark sitting on top. Now this, uh, sorry, we had, <laughs> we had the mercy seat on top. Now this was where the Shekinah glory in the temple would descend 
and God would have fellowship with man. So the priest could go in there, all right, and because sin was dealt with, he could be at the mercy seat, and the Shekinah glory, God himself would descend and have fellowship with him. Now then, what you had on the mercy seat were two cherubim. Remember, one cherub, but more than one cherub, a cherubim, all right, because cherubim is simply plural. Im in Hebrew is the equivalent of S, all right? So you had two cherubim, one on either side. Now then, we saw in an earlier study that when you get the cherubim, they are always guarding something. And we saw the cherubim guarding the way to the tree of life after Adam and Eve were kicked out. Do you remember? The cherubim were guarding. So what are the cherubim guarding? Well, there's two of them, okay. They're guarding God's absolute righteousness and they're guarding God's absolute justice, which together equal the holiness of God. They're guarding the holiness of God in the two aspects. And what we have, that because sin is totally dealt with, and because sin has been paid for by the death of Jesus, expiation, what the ark stands for, and the sin inside the ark, because of that expiation, God's holiness is totally satisfied, and he is absolutely pleased and delighted to have fellowship with us. Propitiation at the mercy seat. And can you see that fellowship follows quite naturally and logically from the fact that sin has been paid for or expiated. Propitiation, God being quite happy with us, proceeds quite naturally from that. Let me actually show you that in the New Testament. 1 Peter and verse 4. Remember, on the mercy seat, because sin was dealt with, the Ark of the Covenant expiated, therefore the mercy seat, propitiation, God was pleased to have fellowship with man. And the Shekinah of glory descended on the mercy seat. And in 1 Peter 4.14 we see this. And he says this, If you are reproached for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. See, the Spirit of the Shekinah glory is now upon us. Alright, and I just want to th throw this in, I might do a study on this, but I think this is quite exciting. I'm pretty sure that in the scriptures you, you, you can find out all about the Shekinah glory. Shekinah isn't actually a Bible <coughs> word, but do you remember the, the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night and in the temple that you got the God's glory descended or the Shekinah glory all right well I'm pretty sure 100% that the Shekinah glory is the Holy Spirit mm. you see that, that fits I, I'm pretty sure about that and here we have it the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you now then okay we've seen there Hillisterian translated mercy seat let's see it translated propitiation and if you go back to Romans 3 and find verse 21 follow these verses with me if you will because they're important but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from law although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction since all have sinned and fall short. I'll correct that in the Greek. For since all have sinned and are falling short of the glory of God, they are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. 
This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to prove at the present time that he himself is righteous and that he justifies him who has faith in Jesus. But there you have Hilasterian whom God put forward Jesus as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And there we see it, this propitiation or this receiving, this fellowship with God and God being delighted and satisfied with us is by faith in Jesus, by believing on Jesus. Now also propitiation, another aspect of it in English, is to be propitious. Anyone ever heard that phrase, to be propitious? No? no. Oh, it's a very common phrase. Oh, it is. Well, I, I thought it was. But anyway, in the dictionary, propitious means this or to make propitious, which is what propitiation does, means to be well disposed towards or to be favourable towards, alright? So in propitiation it means that God has become favourable towards us. Now remember Ephesians 1.6, he hath made us accepted in the beloved. Can you see that? In the beloved, accepted by God. But even better, now also, last time, we looked at that verse in Luke 2, when the angels revealed themselves to the shepherds when Jesus was being born, and what was it they said? Peace on earth and goodwill towards men. Because with the coming of Jesus to deal with sin, God, his attitude to the whole of the world was that of being propitious, well disposed, because he was about to deal with the sin problem. Now, even better way to understand this in the verb form of hilasterin you get hilaskamai alright so we're dealing with the same word but only in a different form and it's the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector do you remember the Pharisee that Jesus spoke who prayed with himself and he said Lord I thank you I'm not like other men you know I do this that and the other alright really self-righteous and Jesus said he got nowhere but there was a tax collector and he went away justified. He went away right with God. Now, what did he say? He said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now, that word merciful is hilaskamai. It's the verb form of the word hilasterian. And that literally, what this, this sort of tax collector says to God, he cries out, he knows he's a sinner. He cries out to God, and he says, Lord, be propitious towards me. He says, God be well disposed towards me. He says, God, be favourable towards me. And what you've got is this. He's saying, God, I cannot satisfy your righteous demands. There's no way I can because I'm a sinner. But he says, Lord, do it for me. Now then, can you see that that is true saving faith? Because what this sinner is saying, he says, Lord, I cannot deal with my sin problem, but you can. And faith is saying, I can't, but God, you can. So this, this tax collector comes to God and he says, God, I'm a sinner. I cannot satisfy your righteous demands, but God, you do it for me. And of course, in Jesus, that's exactly what God did. He satisfied his righteous demands for all of us. And just one more verse, just if you go to Hebrews 2 verse 17, just so you see I'm not cheating, and again exactly the same word here, hilaskamai, or the verb form of hilasterian, and in Hebrews 2, verse 17, we read, therefore he, that is Jesus, had to be made like his brethren in every respect, <coughs> so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. 
So let's now end and put this all together. What have we got? We've got the fact that when Jesus died on the cross, he paid the penalty for our sin and for the sins of the whole world. And this he was able to do because all of us were incorporated in him. When God's judgment hit Jesus for sin, it hit you in Jesus and you died. The judgment of God came on you for your sin in Jesus. So the penalty of sin for the whole world, believers and unbelievers, has been taken care of by Jesus on the cross. And that is expiation. Alright? And that because of that, God's righteous demands are satisfied fully. No problem. Propitiation. Now, as a result of that, we can now see that when Jesus died on the cross, our third electric fence, the penalty of sin, is gone. It's not there anymore. Another part of the barrier, the third electric fence, has now been flattened by Jesus. The problem of the penalty of sin is gone once and for all the moment that Jesus died on the cross. Turn with me to Isaiah 53. One more scripture after that. But I think that if we read this from Isaiah 53, I think that the full force of it might start to come out a little bit. Let's start reading from verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him, we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that made us whole. And we, by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, there's the lamb's sacrifice. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shearers is done, so he opened on his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death. Now do you remember I said that Jesus died twice on the cross, first his human spirit and then as a result died physically. In the Hebrew this word is in the plural. It should read, they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his deaths. See the Bible is very precise. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief when he makes himself an offering for sin. Now there, can you see it? The sin problem, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It has gone. Now we're just going to read one verse again that we read earlier. Go back to Romans 3. We've read this verse once. I just want to read it again. Just to make sure that you see it in this context. All right. And verse 26. And it was to prove at the present time that he himself, this is God, that he himself is righteous 
and that he justifies him who has faith in Jesus. Now the important thing to realise is this, that God has dealt with the problem of our sin, but he has not compromised his righteousness in the slightest. This is the vitally important thing to understand. That when Jesus died on the cross, the whole thing was done legally and above board. Alright? So God has satisfied his righteousness without in the slightest compromising his righteousness. And therefore, when Jesus died, because we were all in him, we all died in him, you have been personally judged by God for your sin, but it was in Jesus. Therefore, you were there, but Jesus died in your place. Now, that is the beauty. I, never, I could never understand the atonement. I believed it because the Bible said it, but I knew there was a missing factor. And when I found that missing bit, what perplexed me became so beautiful, so complete, so perfect, that only God himself could in actual fact come up with it. And therefore, he justifies him who has faith in Jesus. So we see again, everyone, everyone has had their sin problem removed when Jesus died on the cross. And if they come to Jesus, the salvation they have in potential will then, by simply believing on the Lord Jesus Christ, will become actual and they are safe. Now next time we look at the fourth and the final electric fence. Right.